You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 16th of December 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Emma Nelson and a very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up... This is unprecedented territory where the Democrats are winning the argument. They've convinced a majority of Americans that Donald Trump should be impeached. But in the enclaves in which Republicans are thinking about their own re-election prospects, the math is completely inverted. The latest on the potential impeachment of Donald Trump. My guests, Brian Klaas and Michael Binion, will discuss that in the day's other news, including... We'll be hearing why the COP25 climate summit is wrapping up with lukewarm results. Plus, is it time to unplug? Is there something wrong with my attention span? It's a thought that's crossed my mind many times before, but on each occasion I got distracted by something shiny, so never lingered on it. I'm Emma Nelson. Monocle's House View starts now. And a very warm welcome to the show. I'm joined by Brian Class, political scientist and columnist at the Washington Post, and Michael Binion, foreign affairs specialist at the Times newspaper. Now, Democrats who are determined to see Donald Trump successfully impeached are reportedly fuming. It's because, despite the growing body of solid evidence that the US president abused his foreign relations position to try to discredit his rival, the Republicans are refusing to throw their leader under the bus. So why are Republicans so loyal to Donald Trump? Self-interest is their problem. I mean, they they want to win re-election and they know that the base, uh, the Republican base is on board with Trump Come hell or high water. And, and I think that's basically, that's it. That's, that's the answer. Um, there's a, a poll out yesterday from Fox News of all places showing 54% of Americans support impeachment compared to 41% of Americans who oppose it. That's significantly higher than the week before Nixon left office. So, you know, this is unprecedented territory where the Democrats are winning the argument. They've convinced a majority of Americans that Donald Trump should be impeached. But in the enclaves in which Republicans are thinking about their own re-election prospects, the math is completely inverted. And for them, backing impeachment is a surefire way to get primaried by a more diehard Republican and possibly to lose a general election. And that arguably is more dangerous than actually allowing Donald Trump to be kicked out of office so that the Republicans could start again with possibly a slightly more palatable candidate. Yes, but it's a bit late to do that now. I mean, we've only got a year or so before the, well, a year before the election. And to start all over again with a new candidate, I think, would be almost impossible. I mean, even putting the vice president up as a candidate, a sort of interim measure, uh, that wouldn't go down terribly well. And a lot of people would say, well, he's equally a fairly uh, erratic character, unknown quantity. So I think uh, people are just going to have to work out to what extent impeachment can be used by Trump to portray himself as a martyr and make political capital out of it, and to what extent he really is worried by it. Well, this is it, isn't it? I mean, if the impeachment is unsuccessful, this is Donald Trump's greatest ticket to re-election. I, I don't actually think that's true. I think there's, there's this bizarre idea, which I think your question poses, which is that somehow being the third president in American history to be impeached is a political plus. It's, 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 it's truly a strange idea, and I, I don't think it, that the statistics bear this out in any way. In fact, what you see is that Trump is losing in the opinion polls and head-to-head matchups to just about every Democratic challenger imaginable. And so, you know, I think there's this idea that because Trump won in 2016 against the expectations of the sort of liberal elite, that therefore he'll do the same in 2020. But the data 
data don't really back that up. He might win. But right now, you have to make your arguments backed by statistics, and impeachment is hurting him. It's also, I think, something he really worries about, which is to say that in history, if Trump is impeached but not removed, he will be somebody who really is set out amongst other presidents as someone with a stand on his presidency. And privately, there's a lot of reports that that worries him. Is there not, though, the idea that to say that I am a man more sinned against than sinning actually puts you as the victim and and gets people to have more sympathy for you? Well, the only people who believe that already support Trump. I mean, the the, the people who are fair-minded and and critical thinkers about impeachment, I think, in this instance, see that the evidence is overwhelming. It's, it's, It's simply not a question of him being a martyr or a victim. It's the fact that he did things that are more egregious than Richard Nixon and he's being held accountable for it. Yes, but take the comparison with Clinton. I mean, he was impeached, but it didn't actually hurt him politically very much by the end. Well, yes, but he wasn't running for re-election. And also, I think the crimes are quite different. I think people look at personal issues very, very different from using anti-tank missiles as leverage to force an opponent, or sorry, a foreign government to investigate your opponent. Namely, you say that people can find a a, a sexual transgression more relevant and forgivable than ringing up the president of Ukraine Uh, and saying, can you do some digging for me? If if we're going to go down the sexual transgression road, I think Donald Trump would also not enjoy that (laughs) comparison to to Bill Clinton. Well, in that context, let's move on, because there have been quite a lot of direct comparisons between President Donald Trump and the British Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, a man who has quite a few fruity reputation as well when it comes to the ladies. Um, Lots and lots of articles being written at the moment saying Boris Johnson is Donald Trump light. Michael, you know, knew, worked with Boris Johnson. How far down the road can we travel? I think that's a fairly misleading comparison. And in fact, I think we're going to see uh, the path between Trump and Johnson diverge much, much more visibly in the coming months and years. Of course, uh, Johnson is going to have to cosy up to Trump, uh, well, the administration anyway, to try to get some trade deal through, but that will take a long, long time. They have very different views on very different things. Take, for example, climate change, which I think we'll talk about in a moment. I mean, Johnson does not agree with Trump on that at all. And also, Johnson knows, Johnson is a populist in his own way, but he also knows that a close embrace of Trump is pretty toxic for his reputation here in Britain. That was the assumption, though, that when we looked along the lines of... um track records before. Boris Johnson's track record as mayor of London was very, very green and actually very, very internationalist. Wasn't remotely populist and he was the one who who pushed, you know, electric buses and and this, that and the other. Um, Now that he is in power, it was the Conservatives who arguably had the slowest agenda for carbon neutralisation. They said 2050, all the other parties said 2040. They are still the ones that are not doing onshore wind farms. There's the accusation, actually, that Boris Johnson is about as Trump-like when it comes to um, climate change uh, on a much smaller scale, but he's not the good guy. Well, I think there's a mistake to look at what Boris Johnson's going to do, uh, looking at what he has done. He's a mercurial figure. You can't judge what he will do by how he's behaved in the past. He is determined to be a completely different prime minister. I mean, just all the first few uh, steps, the gestures, the symbols, the speeches, all the things he's said, he's going to do a 180-degree switch because he doesn't really need any of the baggage he had before. You know, his ambition was to get where he is. He's got there. Now he's going to do something very different. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if he does suddenly switch on pretty hard to the climate agenda. There's possibly the divergence there that uh, that Michael mentioned, which is the idea that Boris Johnson 
I, lots of people always said that Boris Johnson is an empty vessel. He will say whatever is necessary to get him into power and can change and is mercurial. Donald Trump has make America great again, make me number one at all costs. Arguably, his sense of vision, if we can say he has one, is much clearer than Johnson's. Well, I think I think the insight that Michael has here that's that's right is that Johnson cares not just about himself but about his legacy, yeah. and I think Trump doesn't have the vision to see beyond the daily insult. You know, I mean, I, I've spoken to people who observe the Trump presidency closely in Washington, and they say every day is like a blank page. It's just. Everything has started again today. It's, is somebody being nice to me on TV? Did somebody insult me? Do I need to lash out at them? Do I need to fire someone? Johnson is a strategic character who thinks long-term. And so I think that while both of them may put ego at the front of their agendas, the Johnson ego could actually be productive if he cares about how his personal ambitions are tied to the fate of the country. And I don't think Trump has ever twinned those two in his mind. And is this, as a result, Michael, um, the time when we see the conservative movement changing? Um, If you have Boris Johnson at the helm, he's going to do something politically more different than than what Donald Trump isn't. Well, he's just the sort of character who can jeopardize anything. I mean, he he would and Trump or Johnson? Yes, uh, uh, and has done in the past. Yes, exactly. And he's more or less said that that's what he's going to do. He now knows that, funnily enough, the conservative heartland is the old Labour mining constituencies. Exactly what no one would have expected. And he's also made it quite clear they expect to be repaid in some ways. He's got to repay them or at least bring something that they will value if he's going to keep their votes next time round. He's already thinking about another term as prime minister. So he's got to change the Conservative Party. And he said so. He said it's got to change. Uh, Look at the way the right wing, uh, the sort of lampoon characters, uh, Rhys Mogg, who was a sort of caricature of an old Tory toff, was basically silenced during the entire election campaign. Um, Talking about regaining votes and getting votes, some people have drawn comparisons, Brian, between the people that Trump and Johnson surrounded themselves with when they were running for office. Trump had Steve Bannon, who tapped into the far right, the alt-right. Boris Johnson has the scorched earth Dominic Cummings, who basically absolutely loves throwing everything into chaos. It is arguably picking the right supporter who got them to where they were because neither of them, let's face it, are politicians. One is a businessman, one is a journalist. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that that's right. But I also think that Bannon is very different from Cummings and also uh, Bannon is, is, I think, much more dangerous in that way. Trump's governance strategy has been really overshadowed by the fact that they pandered too far and, and that Trump embraced too far white nationalism. And and what you're looking at in, you know, 2020 America and the election ahead is that there are a huge number of people that believe that the country economically is performing well, not just in general, but for them, but will not vote for Donald Trump. And that is a that is evidence of a miscalculation in strategy, right? Because if Donald Trump had won the election with the same playbook in 2016, but then had pivoted, as, as Michael is suggesting that Boris might, he would have been reelected uh, next year, I think, without any question. In, in my mind, the scariest thing about Trumpism is that Trump 2.0 with more discipline will win. And I think that's what that's what really worries people who care about democracy is that a demagogue with more discipline is much more dangerous than an impulsive demagogue. And Donald Trump is showing both the pitfalls of demagoguery and the pathway forward for someone who wants to learn from his mistakes. Brian Klaas and Michael Binion there. We'll be back in just a moment. But first, here's Monocle's Yolene Goffin with some of the other stories we've been following today.
Thanks, Emma. There have been violent clashes between police and protesters in India. It follows the introduction of a law which allows non-Muslims from three countries to claim citizenship if they are facing religious persecution. Police have used tear gas in a bid to disperse protesters in cities across the country. Labour's leaders have apologised for the party's catastrophic defeat in last week's UK election, which saw them lose 59 parliamentary seats. Jeremy Corbyn and his second-in-command, John McDonnell, have both said they will step down in the next year to allow a leadership contest to take place. And finally, it's been revealed that the Japanese city of Hiroshima is planning to knock down two buildings that survived the 1945 atomic bomb. The structures were used as a makeshift hospital after the bomb itself, and some locals believe they should be preserved as part of the city's heritage. Those are today's headlines. Back to you, Emma. Thank you very much indeed, Yolene. You're with Monocle's House View. I'm Emma Nelson, and joining me in the studio, Brian Klaas and Michael Binion. A mess, a failure, a waste of time. COP25, the longest UN climate change conference in history, ended this weekend, two days and two nights late, and drenched by critical words. It seems that saving the planet is a hard ask, especially when those in charge of our nations want different things. Michael, this looked like a mess and a badly organised one at that. Well, exactly. I mean, the uh, aim of the conference was really implementation. The principles have already been agreed. The tough part is how do you put them into action? How do you actually measure uh, and and, uh, hold nations to account uh, emissions? How do you measure how much, uh, I mean, you can estimate it. Then how do you say, what are you going to do about it? Uh, what are the obligations? And m- more to the point, what, it, what will we do if you don't abide by the promises of what you promised to do? Uh, and, of course, for those countries where they don't have the money and they don't have the priorities of reducing emissions, I'm thinking particularly big countries that are uh, semi-industrial uh, or not industrial at all, such as, such as India, where there are vast uh, emissions uh, coming out, uh, they don't have the money or the priorities to change our industry around. I mean, they're small cottage industries that are deeply polluting. And the big countries, the big polluting countries, are not the rich ones, apart from the United States. So this is a problem that everybody faces, but no one seems willing to take responsibility for. Well, I think it's an absence of global leadership at a time where absence of global leadership basically defines geopolitics, right? So you have Donald Trump still tends to deny that climate change is real. Um, that's, you know, it's unprecedented to have a global challenge that all the world agrees needs to be solved and have the U.S. be denying it exists. Um, so that's a unique circumstance we find ourselves in. And China, of course, is more willing to tackle the problem, but is not necessarily willing to take on all the burdens of global leadership that it might entail. What I'm surprised by, too, with this, and I've been surprised by this for a long time with, with climate change politics, is why there's not a bigger push for a massive research fund. Because I think that in parallel to the idea that we need to, you know, sort of tighten our emissions belts, which we absolutely do, and we need to have innovation, we should also be trying to solve the problem with a moonshot fund that says, you know, we're going to put billions and billions of dollars to put the best minds to solve this so that it actually doesn't cripple the economies of China and India and and other developing countries, because that's the only way to square the circle of climate justice and the question of how do we make poor countries pay for things that ultimately they didn't do in the the first place. There is that issue, isn't there, that in order to deal with climate change, the, the narrative at the moment is we must stop doing lots of things. We must stop flying. We must stop using plastics. And it is very hard for a society which has enjoyed getting on planes and has enjoyed plastics and has enjoyed making money out of heavy industry to stop doing it. 
Is there a need to find a carrot rather than a stick? How you make things possible rather than stop the human race yes, from having certainly. fun? Yes, certainly. I mean, the obvious um, example is electric cars. I mean, it, it's not the answer to everything, but uh, given that pollution from vehicles is one of the largest factors of all in polluting the atmosphere, uh, just de- reducing emissions from petrol or diesel cars will make a difference. Uh, and you can adjust the tax uh, in a way that it makes it uh, worth doing that. You can also invest in things, uh, I mean, it sounds a bit uh, pie in the sky, but carbon capture. How do you actually uh, reduce carbon from the atmosphere? Now, uh, as Brian says, a, a large research fund could find quite um, simple ways of doing this, which wouldn't uh, be both uh, scientifically impossible or cost a vast, uh, a vast amount of money. Um, you can plant trees, you can do all kinds of things positive, uh, instead of just feeling that you have to punish consumers. So next year we have Glasgow, which is when the UN comes back together, where they are expected that the 70 nations who were at uh, COP25 will hopefully submit stronger plans to cut their carbon emissions. What chance do you think we have, Brian, of the European Union and the US and the large and the large polluters and the small countries suffering of somehow managing to get it together? I, I think that 2020, for the global perspective, will be the U.S. presidential election will be a climate change election. I think for the U.S. it won't be. But I think that that, that will really determine whether or not this is going to get solved. Because without the U.S. at the table, I mean, it's a significant percentage of global emissions. But it's not just that. It's also that any time that the U.S. walks away from a globally binding agreement, of which you know Paris is voluntary, but still it's supposed to be binding in some sense, there is... This idea that now we can just shirk our responsibilities. If the U.S. isn't doing it, why should we? And so, you know, until you get global leadership coming from Washington on this, I'm very skeptical that more progress will get made beyond Paris. You're with Monocle 24. Joining me in the studio, Brian Klass, a political scientist and columnist at The Washington Post, and Michael Binion, foreign affairs specialist at The Times. Finally, China's state broadcaster has cancelled the showing of Arsenal's match against Manchester City today over comments by Mesut Ozil. He criticised the Chinese government's treatment of Uyghur Muslims. So we have Mesut Ozil, who's a high-profile footballer for Arsenal, who are flying reasonably high in the Premier League, but that's not what we're here to talk about, making an overtly political comment and everything suddenly exposed itself as a very complicated house of cards. What do you think of this, Michael? Well, it's very difficult because uh, there are two huge principles at stake. One principle is that surely individual people, whatever their job, should have the right to voice their views on issues on which they feel strongly, uh, whether on Twitter or whatever. He was not uh, sending out a view in the name of Arsenal. He was sending in, in, the, in his own name. On the other hand, that clashes with another overwhelming matter of principle, and that is the principle to make money. (laughs) And that is what the Football League uh, wants to do, and particularly Arsenal, which makes enormous amounts of money. Four million supporters in China. I mean, of course, uh, you know, 0.0% of the population, but that's a lot of people and a lot of money. And the Football League generally, the Premier League in Britain, uh, earns something like £160 million, uh, or is it more? It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money from China. And this is, uh, and this had very, very immediate effect in China, didn't it, Brian? We had football fans burning their Arsenal shirts. Uh, I think Mesut Ozil has four million follow- followers on Sinuebo, and he was called a dirty ant for attacking China. I mean, do you think he could have even contemplated the backlash to this? 
Or was um, he a fool not to? Well, no, I, I I would never use the word fool for him. I would say he's incredibly brave and should be applauded for this. I mean, if we can't call out the detention of over a million people for their religion in China, in, in, in places like uh, you know in Xinjiang and, and the Uyghur Muslim minority, if we can't back, for example, the Hong Kong protests in favor of democracy as the NBA general manager of the Houston Rockets did and faced huge backlash... What's the point? I mean, this is what we're. This is what our countries are supposed to stand for globally. And what political scientists would say about this is that China is using something. There's a new term called sharp power, which is it's in between soft power and hard power. It's basically targeted financial interests that sway things in a very, very direct way. They have a lot of leverage now because of globalization to sway public opinion in the West and silence people. And if we allow this to become the new normal where NBA owners or football players can't speak out against egregious human rights abuses and violations of democratic principles, then we've truly lost our way. And I think that that's something where it should not be controversial. And it's a shame. It's a, it's a real shame that we have even the, the whiff of backlash against people who speak out like this. We had... Um Arsenal, though, very much distancing itself from Mesut Ozil's comments. Um, and there's a wonderful article in The Guardian that says, imagine the frantic boardroom conversations on Friday after uh, Ozil expresses his horror at the treatment of Uyghurs. The fear of losing profits from shirt sales, commercial deals and future pre-season tours must have choked senior executives. There is that fear, isn't there, that your brand is absolutely discredited. But were Arsenal right to step back and effectively throw Ozil under the bus? Well, they didn't actually throw him under the bus. I mean, he's still playing for them. They just sort of suggested that he might tone down his comments or at least make it clear that these are not comments in the name of Arsenal. That's what they're trying to do. I mean, they can't tell him, don't comment. I mean, as Brand says, that would be not only unacceptable, it would be reinforcing China's sense that it can blackmail anyone that it feels is trespassing into its own territory or or voicing criticism. Uh, But Arsenal, I think, understandably, could say, well, actually... He doesn't speak for us as a club, which is reasonable to say, but uh, they should never say he should not say it. But, you know, I mean, the thing about this is that if we were more enlightened about this, we would have we would say shame on you, Arsenal, for not criticizing the Uyghur Muslim detention camps and backing your player up. Why is it that people in China are burning their shirts about Arsenal? People in Britain should be burning their shirts of of Arsenal if they're unwilling to criticize the detention of a million people because of their religion. That's not the role of a football club. No, but well, I mean, this is what you say say, uh, during times of, of great crisis. I mean, if we go back to times when people were rounded up because of their religion, I think the businesses in Germany in the 1930s and 1940s that didn't speak out should have had more voice. I think that's the role in a capitalist society of consumers to hold people to account if their businesses do not voice the values that they represent. Well, I think that's a very good argument. But of course, I think it's more the argument of a government, uh, the argument that the government should speak out. Yes, there's a famous uh, phrase of Edmund Burke, you know, all that it takes for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. Uh, And if Arsenal don't speak out, on the other hand, you might say, well, why don't several big British companies speak out? Why doesn't a village hall in Northumberland speak out? Why doesn't everybody speak out? But the fact is they don't. You can't speak out on every single uh, egregious transgression uh, in the world. There are just too many. Brian Class and Michael Binion, thank you very much indeed for joining us on Monocle 24. In a moment, we'll hear a little bit more about information overload. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned.
And if you've just joined us, welcome. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Emma Nelson. And finally today, our editorial team considers whether the age of information overload and everything on demand has got our attention spans switching stations. A confession. I saw Marriage Story in the cinema last week and got a bit bored. For much of the 137-minute-long Netflix-backed drama, my friend was mesmerised, while I was stifling yawns, in spite of the fact that Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson are at the height of their powers. This has sparked some soul-searching. Is there something wrong with my attention span? It's a thought that's crossed my mind many times before, but on each occasion I got distracted by something shiny, so never lingered on it. Diminishing powers of concentration in the digital age have been the subject of countless studies, which have revealed things such as the average adult attention span was 12 seconds in 2000, which doesn't seem very long, but is now only eight. That's less than a goldfish. Meanwhile, Cal Newport, a US author and computer science professor, has argued that focus is the new IQ, insofar as it's the most important form of intelligence in the 21st century. Which begs the question, how do we improve our concentration? Google suggests meditation, exercise, hydration, chewing gum and drinking tea. I think a better idea is to ditch my phone or at least delete some apps. As I head to Australia for Christmas, I won't be TikToking, Snapchatting or Instagramming. Mm, Stopping that last one might be a fib. I've armed myself with weighty books and downloaded shows that last 60 minutes per episode and require an investment, Succession, Pose and Watchmen. And if you see me at a Perth outdoor cinema falling asleep during The Irishman, the three-and-a-half-hour epic that is my new Everest, please shake me. And that's all we have time for today's programme. Monocle's House View was produced by Tom Hall. Our studio managers were Steph Chungu and David Stevens. Coming up at 20 hundred hours London time, a brand new edition of Monocle on Culture. Monocle's House View is back at the same time tomorrow. That's 1800 London time. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. Listening.